Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. Hello, everyone. Uh, Joe Callan, Energy Security Forum Manager and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute here. Since uh, Kelly's on vacation, I'm doing the review of global energy issues on my own, so uh, bear with me. So we'll dive right into it. First up, I'd like to cover the growing political conflict between the federal government and the government of Alberta over the 2035 deadline for net zero electricity generation. On Monday, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith said that the province is looking toward a timeline of reaching net zero electricity by 2050, and that the federal government's 2035 deadline is too soon, too costly, and would carry the risk of blackouts. This follows the government of Alberta's decision to institute a seven-month moratorium on approvals for new wind and solar projects over one megawatt starting on August 3rd while the impacts on local land use and reclamation from new renewables were cited to justify this decision. The Alberta government also called to attention the impact of growth in renewables on Alberta's electricity system reliability. The decision by the Alberta government was met with substantial criticism, including a great op-ed in the Global Mail from a former professor of mine, Kent Fellows. Uh, Kent pointed out this decision contradicts the traditional free market approach to electricity generation regulation in Alberta, dating back to the Electric Utilities Act of 1995. He argues that the design of Alberta's market allows anyone who thinks they can make a profit by selling electricity to the market participate in the system. This is in contrast to the state monopolies on electricity generation found in most of the other provinces. This isn't to say that the concern over intermittency is unwarranted. In fact, there have been previous attempts in Alberta to provide state support for firming up the grid. Notably, Rachel Notley's NDP government was looking to implement a capacity market which would subsidize dispatchable generation to be on call in case of shortfalls in the energy-only market. The subsequent UCP government led by Jason Kenney uh, scrapped this idea in favor of maintaining the energy-only market. The move by the current UCP government indicates that the government of Alberta is again looking to intervene more directly in electricity generation. What this looks like is up to question, though something like a capacity market or additional requirements for renewables are certainly possible. The government of Alberta moratorium certainly raises questions over the implementation of the 2035 net zero deadline in Alberta and the showdown between the federal government and Alberta on this question. On August 10th, Environment and Climate Change Canada issued draft regulations for this 2035 deadline. These regulations will be implemented under the expansive Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Since these are regulations and not legislation, they're not subject to parliamentary review and will instead eventually come into force through an order in council from Minister Guibault. These draft regulations call for a prohibition on the generation of electricity via the combustion of fossil fuels with a carbon intensity of more than 30 tons of CO2 emissions per gigawatt hour of electricity starting on January 1st, 2035. According to Environment and Climate Change Canada, Alberta emitted 540 tons of CO2 equivalent per gigawatt hour of electricity in 2021. In Saskatchewan, these emissions were even higher uh, at around 730 tons of CO2 equivalent. Bringing these numbers down to 30 tons is an enormous challenge. However, the regulations also have some flexibility. For example, power plants which are installed before 2025 are exempt from the cap for 20 years after they were commissioned, meaning that a gas plant entering operation on December 31st, 2024 could keep operating without abatement all the way until 2044. 
Further, the regulations also include a less stringent 40 tons per gigawatt hour requirement for plants equipped with carbon capture and storage, and also allow for the operation of unabated plants uh, beyond the introduction of the regulations for up to 450 hours per year. These exemptions could allow natural gas power plants to continue operating in Canada significantly beyond the 2035 deadline and potentially indefinitely in the case of natural gas paired with carbon capture. However, there are still some thorny questions. The first, of course, is the question of who will pay for the cost of these new regulations. Uh, there will be costs as new sources of power generation will be needed to take the place of an accelerated phase out of coal and natural gas fired power plants. There also likely need to be payments to uh, make these companies whole if they are shuttering power plants. Uh, the second is the treatment of the 3.5 gigawatts of cogeneration facilities used by steam-assisted gravity drainage sites in the oil sands. If these facilities look to be included in these regulations, oil sands companies may simply disconnect them from the grid, leading to a major electricity supply shortfall in Alberta. Another issue is the question of investor certainty. There are major questions over whether the federal government has jurisdiction on these files. Further, current polls have the Liberal Party of Canada with just a 6% chance of winning the most seats if an election were held today. Since these are regulations and not legislation, the party which forms government in the next election has a relatively free hand to modify or eliminate aspects of these regulations. Current rhetoric from the Conservatives indicates that this is a strong possibility. All of this has led to a major showdown between the federal government and Alberta with Premier Daniel Smith digging in her heels. In response, the federal government has indicated that other federal subsidies may be tied to provincial governments aligning themselves with these 2035 regulations, potentially bringing major Alberta oil companies to put pressure on the government of Alberta due to the risk of a cut to the carbon capture tax credit. This is shaping up to be a very interesting fight with potentially far-reaching implications for Canadian energy. Next up, I'd like to talk about the labour disputes happening in Australia and their implications and interactions with global energy trade and inflation. On Tuesday, Bloomberg reported that Woodside Energy Group and labour union group the Offshore Alliance have failed to reach consensus on pay increases and working conditions on the major industrial gas sites in Western Australia. Uh, the two sides will look to hold new talks next week, but the spectre of labour action at the Northwest Shelf Project has sent European LNG prices spiking by 40%. What I think is interesting about this story is how this is an example of inflation increasing energy prices, as opposed to energy prices increasing inflation. We've been seeing labour action resulting in industrial shutdowns all over the world in recent months, as unions renegotiate contracts in response to rising costs of living, including the impact of the energy shock following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. However, here is an example of labor action caused by inflation having a sudden dramatic impact on energy prices. This, I think, can be pointed to as a possible example of a wage price spiral. There is a strong possibility that we haven't seen the end of global inflation if similar events continue to occur. Last up, I'd like to discuss briefly the surprise primary election outcome in Argentina, where controversial libertarian candidate Javier Millet has emerged as the frontrunner for the presidential election on October 22nd. Malay has a slight lead over the more traditional candidates Sergio Massa and Patricia Bullrich, respectively representing the Peronist and establishment conservative parties. Malay outperformed polls by a whopping 10 percentage points. Now, unlike Canadian or American primary elections, Argentine primaries are the first round of a runoff voting system, which narrows candidates through subsequent elections until one candidate receives enough support to become the president and form government. 
In the next round of the election, Millet has a narrow path to win outright, assuming he can boost his support to between 40 and 45%, while both of the other candidates are stuck at or below 30%. It is more likely, however, that the voting goes into a second round, narrowing the field to only two candidates. In that case, the two top candidates will face off in November. Nevertheless, it's important to understand what Millet is proposing. He has proposed a set of drastic reforms to Argentina's government institutions and economy. The most significant of these is likely the elimination of Argentina's central bank and the adoption of the U.S. dollar as a country's currency. The problem is, as economist Brad Sester pointed out, that Argentina does not have nearly enough U.S. dollars to pull this off. In fact, Argentina recently negotiated to repay a portion of a loan from the IMF in Chinese yuan instead of dollars. While Argentina's current 115% inflation rate indicates that something is seriously wrong with Argentinian monetary policy, major questions are arising about whether these extreme solutions are the answer. However, while Argentine stocks initially had a major sell-off from the news, they have since recovered, indicating the deep lack of confidence that markets have in establishment Argentinian leaders to pull off the economic reforms necessary to bring back stability in the country. With major reserves of lithium, oil, and natural gas in Argentina, these developments could have impacts on global supply of critical resources. For good or ill is another question. Okay, and those are all the news stories that I'll cover today. Uh, To our listeners, if you are interested in these updates, you can subscribe to our free Energy Security Forum newsletter on our website and receive an overview of these stories shaping energy security and energy geopolitics around the world delivered directly into your inbox every Wednesday. Now we'll switch over to Kelly's interview with Genevieve Donella May about the politics and geopolitics of water in Asia. For today's interview recorded August 4, 2023, we discussed China's control over water resources in Southeast Asia. We're going a little bit outside of our normal remit here, but I think that um, globally, uh, when you talk about energy security and, and other commodities water has will become a commodity is becoming a commodity and uh it's important to the overall resource sector um in general and specifically we're really happy to have on with us today from singapore genevieve donellen may genevieve is a research associate at the asia society policy institute of australia she is also a prolific author with articles written about food and water security in asia for the south china morning post the Red Line podcast, and for The Diplomat. Really delighted to have you join me today on Energy Security Cubed, Genevieve. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be invited as a guest here. Let's get right into it. Um, in 2021, uh, Beijing developed its first five-year plan for water security. In May this year, it issued a blueprint for improving water management supply and quality and expanding existing infrastructure. Experts say China has added 100 water diversion projects over the past five years. Just think about that, folks. Measures which have their roots in Mao Zedong's ambition to hydrate northern China in the 1950s. Can you give us a bit of an overview of Genevieve about how China has addressed water security historically and how it addresses these challenges now? And, you know, feel free to go as broad or as as detailed as you'd like in this opening discussion. Yes, certainly. So I guess when we look to the role of water and water security in China, it's definitely an incredibly interesting one. Uh, We know that in both modern and ancient times, Chinese rulers have really acknowledged the importance of water, uh, not only as a weapon, but also as a tool of control 
in maintaining social stability and securing their political leadership. So we can look back to over 4,000 years when you, the great of the Shah dynasty, is said to have tamed the Yellow River. And then, of course, more recently during the 20th century, we've seen a Chairman Mao Zedong uh, when he swam in the, in the Yangtze as a show of power at the time. So what we can take from this is that Beijing's leaders are acutely aware of the importance of water in maintaining social stability and ensuring the CCP's survival. Uh, the main area or the main way in which China or Beijing has really aimed to secure or safeguard its water supply is definitely an engineering focused approach. So this dates back in part to Mao Zedong's idea that man must conquer nature in the 1950s and 1960s. And more recently, we see this in the Chinese state's construction of just enormous water transfer projects and hydropower dams as well. So that's looking at China, part of uh, why there's interest in the downstream region from countries in not only Southeast Asia, but also South Asia and so on, as well as Central Asia, is that uh, China is the headwater or that Tibet in China is the headwater of a number of uh, transnational rivers, which are incredibly important, not only in China from a domestic perspective, but also across the region. Uh, transboundary rivers are generally governed by multiple agreements, but when it comes to Asia, it's quite different because Asia relies primarily on bilateral agreements. One issue of contention between China and the many downstream countries is that China has not signed a 1997 UN Water Courses Convention, yet neither have most of its downstream neighbours. So instead, China is a party to roughly 50 water or water-related bilateral agreements and instruments. How effective has that type of policy regime been, um, at, at, you know, in terms of water security in Asia? And are the, is there recourse for downstream nations uh, against China when they perceive to be acting irresponsibly or differently with uh, with respect to water management because it's what well, you know water is great if you're the upstream gal like right you know it's not a bid ask it's a you become a you're a price taker right so yes yeah. definitely uh, absolutely I would say that uh, that's your talk question that's a question I think that it that needs a whole episode dedicated to it my <laughs> short answer <laughs> Uh, to that would be that Don't be too short. give a short, a brief, brief overview then, is that Good. China's water management of transnational rivers like the Brahmaputra, like the Selwyn, like the Mekong and so on, it's really tied up with Beijing's foreign policy and the economic cooperation, or lack thereof, with its neighbours. So we could compare the difference in China's relations with Kazakhstan and China's bilateral relationship with India with, of course, the latter being tied up in broader geopolitical, geoeconomic disputes, as well as disputes over territories and borders as well. So we can see in the case that unlike uh, China and Kazakhstan, that the Sino-Indian bilateral relationship is itself very complex. And this means that water and all other natural resources as well, that it's also quite complex uh, for, on both sides of the equation there. So in terms of what the Southeast Asian countries or South Asian countries or even Central Asians can do in response to any concerns or fears that they might have about China acting irresponsibly or, or perceived Chinese water manipulation or threat, I would say that it's actually quite difficult because again, it's tied up with economics and trade. And so if a country does or exports a lot of trade 
to China or it imports a lot of Chinese goods, well, then I would imagine that uh, the government of that country would be unlikely to really want to risk this economic relationship. And so in that case, like what we see with Kazakhstan, that uh, the Kazakhstan government will perhaps go along with what Beijing says more or less. As well. But having said all of that, as this is an energy security podcast, I'm quite keen to discuss the relationship between water and energy resources. We know that the UN forecasts that by 2030, half of the world will face water stress, if not outright shortages. And one of the major ways this will manifest is through access to electricity. So how does, China man- how does China's management of water supply affect energy and vice versa? Um, and what impact would this have on water and energy security for other downstream countries? Like this, these go hand in hand, right? It isn't just water, but it's other other resources and more specifically energy. Yes, that's a, definitely another complex question. So China is often referred to as Asia's hydro hegemon, as in because it controls uh, the upstream of the rivers that begin in the Tibetan plateau. And so China is under pressure, not only from its citizens and from the central government and the local governments as well to safeguard uh, China's water supply, but also pressure from the other countries it's involved with that are in the region to safeguard the region's water supply. And by that, I mean that the water management that China does for its own citizens will not only affect its own people, but also affect uh, the future of the hundreds of millions of people across the region, if not billions that rely on transnational rivers, again, like the Brahmaputra, the Selwyn, the Mekong and so on, for not only water resources, uh, for drinking, for agriculture, but also for energy purposes as well. So one example of where we've seen China's water management have a domino effect on the energy security supply, and this is just from a domestic perspective, is when uh, the Yangtze River Basin Uh, hit China last year during the summer in 2022. So for provinces like Sichuan province, a Yangtze River Basin province that are incredibly reliant on hydropower, according to estimates, we know that uh, Sichuan is reliant on hydropower for up to 80% of its energy supplies. So you can imagine that with the drought, it not only affected the province's water availability and uh, created water shortages, but also had a devastating effect on Sichuan's hydropower power production, as well as energy exports. So Sichuan province exports uh, hydropower to other to other provinces, particularly on the eastern coast of China as well. I think part of the issue with China and indeed Asia is that there's all kinds of interlinked factors like rapid urbanization and concomitant population growth, as well as, of course, dem- competing demands from agriculture, from industry and domestic uses. And then we have climate change, of course, the kind of impacts, whether it's severe droughts or severe flooding, and that they're really making water security and energy security for not only countries domestically uh, going across the countries, but also going across the region. So these are really quite complex issues for countries in the region to tackle. Well, you know, I totally, yes, it's you've, you've kind of twigged me onto a thought because in the last 72 hours, you know, they've had 29 inches of rain in China. Um, the Beijing is underwater. Um, but it also speaks to the, what you just said about climate change. I think that in my, in my world, the, my most, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I certainly understand, I don't understand climate change. I don't, lots of, most people don't, um, but we are seeing a lot more uh, violent 
or chaotic events. I think I read yes, where sure. this was 100, 140 years since it rained this much um, that they know of. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, um, as temperatures rise, glaciers in China, which you've mentioned the Tibetan plateau, you know, those, we live in Alberta, right? Like we're adjacent to the Rocky Mountains and all the water courses in Alberta and until you get over to Manitoba, um, come from the Rocky Mountains. Um, and uh, But the Tibetan Plateau is a huge, huge, I can, can't imagine the, the flow of water uh, from that area of the world. But at the same time, um, the 10 major rivers that come out of there are expected to lose 30 to 40% of their volume due to uh, shrinkage of glaciers by 2100. I don't know that I agree with that, but that's, someone's got to make a prediction, which is according to the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, an intergovernmental agency dedicated to protecting the Hindu Kush Himalayan region, which we just, which you and I discussed. Um, can you talk a bit in your own words, you know, how you see climate change affecting water security in China and Southeast Asia, given that backdrop of, of, uh, of shrinking glaciers? Yes, it's quite, again, it's another one of these complex issues because in Asia already, both water and water related challenges are notably severe. And so when we look at uh, the global population, we know that the region is home to more than 50% of the global population. And yet it has less fresh water than any other continent aside from Antarctica. And so when we look at the Tibetan Plateau and the surrounding region, we see that the glacier melt and the mountain springs provide a significant amount of water flowing out of China to many of the downstream countries in Asia. So of course, again, it's an incredibly important region for, the, for not only China, but for all of Asia. And yet, as aside from the study that you mentioned about the glaciers, uh, losing around 30 to 40% of their volume by 2100. We're also seeing other studies are demonstrating that climate change is impacting Asia's water insecurity by reshaping future water availability. So that could be in the form of uh, erratic extreme weather events like the droughts and the flooding uh, that you mentioned, but it could also be through shifting monsoon patterns. So this makes the region highly susceptible to floods, to droughts and disasters, as we've seen in recent years. Adding to that, uh, another study has shown that from 2050, water availability will decrease in most of Asia's rivers. And so given the reliance on all of these downstream countries on shared water resources for not only socioeconomic development, agricultural production, drinking and so on, the worsening of a water resources imbalance, which is what we have at present, both within the countries and across the region, will likely heighten water insecurity challenges in the downstream region as a whole and in the various river basin countries. So my short answer is that it's a lot of bad news based on the current predictions and estimates that we have. When you say about the glacier melt, in the short term, we could say, well, the total water volume will increase by, from a short term perspective because of the glaciers are shrinking and could likely cause floods, again, based on the information that we have at the moment. But from a medium to longer term perspective, just the absence of the glacier melt without being replenished to its historical sizes will have far more devastating effects in the long term than any short term gain. Yeah, it's um, it's a quandary. Like I, 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 and I don't know how you, like I, you know, going back to what you said, I think people need to remember, as you just pointed out, 
50% of the world's population is in a 500, 700, 800 mile radius, right? Like from India to China. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, or 3,000, whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a, a tenth of the earth has 50% of the population of the earth. So even if you, you know, that the, the water, the draw on water resources as the second most important thing after oxygen, you know, it's, it's hard to fathom how we get out of this. I, I don't know if there's a way out. I really don't. I, I hate to be a, here's a metaphor, glass half empty, but it's not good. No, wow. no, it, it, it's not good at all. And I think that, again, I might, in comparison to, say, the European Union, where there's perhaps both more bilateral and multilateral cooperation, when we look to Asia, there's limited cooperation and there's a numerous domestic water management issues in each of the countries. And what we're seeing is a tragedy of the common scenario, as in where competition is supplanting regional cooperation whether that's with China and Central Asia or China and the rest of us, South Asia or China and Southeast Asia and so on. And because of this, we're having it, we're seeing this cascade effect or a domino effect on both water security and energy security in, again, in each of the countries and in the river basin countries and of course across the region. And so as a result, it becomes more challenging for governments and for policymakers and even at sometimes for researchers to make the informed long-term decisions concerning the planning, the management and the development of transnational river basins. And this in turn, as if matters weren't already complicated enough, I would argue that it also adds to the, it fuels the, the, the thinking and the ideas about both future water related inter and interstate conflicts as well. I'd say that while China does have a responsibility to, to make considerable efforts because it is Asia's hydrohegemon, I think that we should also keep in mind that other riparian countries, other river basin countries also have the responsibility to respond positively to uh, the kind of steps or the kind of measures that China will hopefully put forward to help in the region. China is often dubbed as Asia's hydrohegemon. Hydro um, and as you say, they're the, uh, or it's obvious that they're under pressure to safeguard the region's water supply and water management will affect its own future and hundreds of millions of people, people, hundreds of millions of people across the continent. Um, and you, I think it's, you're right to point out that it, it, it's kind of like the conversation we had before we started the podcast about collaboration. Here we are, me in Calgary at 6 p.m. in the evening and you in Singapore at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. For me, collaborating about a discussion point that I think is really, really important. China, you know, oftentimes could be characterized as the bully in the in the schoolyard, but at the same time, they know that the, if they don't help with the other kids, there's nobody to play with. Um, at the same time, the other parties to the party have to pay attention too, um, and not just uh, take um, or even what what they may have to pay for for uh, energy or water. But what what could China do to demonstrate that it can? be a responsible steward of Asia's water supply and what factors might prevent it from doing so. I think you've touched on that a little bit, but let's wrap this up with that kind of conversation, Genevieve. How, 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 how should China act here? Because they do think longer term than most. most yes, for sure. Yes, yes, I definitely agree with that assessment. So I think that looking back at what we've discussed, one measure that China could definitely take now is to just to provide the downstream region all of the countries, whether it's South Asia, Central Asia, 
Southeast Asia with real-time year-round hydrological data as part of greater efforts for uh, uh, perhaps a potential collaboration with river basin countries down the line. In the past, we know that China has refused at times to share this data. So again, a transparency and a willingness to consistently provide the hydrological data from China would serve multiple purposes, aside from reducing concerns about the impacts of natural disasters and also supporting the planning and management of shared river resources in the downstream region. It could also alleviate suspicion over the downstream region's fears of Chinese uh, water manipulation and also the potential for water wars between different countries for access for a limited supply of water. So that would be my number one suggestion. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up here? About you know, this has been a fascinating discussion. I, I, I hope people like it. Um, we're outside our normal remit, as I said, but um, it's been fa I find it fascinating and something that people just don't think about. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? I think uh, just to reiterate on one of the points that it's quite a complex and multifaceted matter. It's not only affecting countries domestically, and we could look at, say, the differences in Chinese provinces, but it's also affecting countries differently. So while some countries are likely to experience more floods, others will experience more droughts. And so where we have to keep this in mind when we try to push forward perhaps regional agreements or even try to strengthen existing bilateral agreements between the different countries, that uh, each country should not only think of its own people and its own responsibility in, of course, meeting water security, energy security, and even food security goals, but also when helping other countries within the region. I think we really need a, some kind of collaborative program or something like that to be a, for all the countries to be able to put forward their agreements without fear of some kind of reprisal. Well, I think that's a good place to end, and I'll just share my, a few of my own thoughts. I, you know, this is a global commons. Um, globalism is not going to go away. Um, we have to be more and more cognizant of each other's needs, and, and uh, uh, I think it's really important that uh, we share insights um, about this and other issues. Um, and th thanks so much for coming on our podcast, Genevieve. We always ask our guests um, before they, we let them go and you get on with your Friday. Um, what are you reading these days? Ah, these days. So it's actually related to China, but not really related to water. It's uh, Yang Cheng's latest book about the three Sung sisters uh, in China during the 20th century. So I started reading yesterday on the plane from Australia to Singapore. So far, it's been incredibly eye-opening. I had briefly studied in China and then worked there in 2014 and 2015. And I had learned of them during that time from um, a Shanghai or a more of a China perspective. So it's great to get other insights into how, how they saw their lives. Thanks again for coming on our podcast. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Jill Kalman, 
and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cube.